Hi there, and thanks for tuning in to A Student's Perspective, the weekly series that connects students with designers, manufacturers, educators, industry professionals, and design media celebrities to hear their stories on just how they've gotten to where they are now. Through our conversations, we connect the past, present, and future of design to show just how much we can learn from each other to grow towards our fullest potential without prescribed limitations. Think of a student's perspective as a weekly design lecture series from the student's point of view. A student's perspective is a division of the nonprofit University Hall of Innovation, whose goals are to connect students with the design industry through design challenges and mentorship and a collaboration with the Marywood University Interior Architecture Program in Scranton, Pennsylvania. All interviews can be found in their video format at www.astudentsperspective.tv. For more information or sponsorship inquiries, please contact University Hall of Innovation at gmail.com. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of A Student's Perspective. My name is Natalia. And my name is Paige, and we're in our own booth today at the Suites at Market Square. And today we're here with Jason Phillips from the Phillips Collection. So would you like to introduce yourself just a little? Sure, yeah. Uh, as you said, Jason Phillips, we're a family business. Uh, been around 35 years, based in High Point, North Carolina. Uh, started in New York. And I'm the second generation. I run sales and marketing. I do some product development for the company. Awesome, awesome. So we yeah. know that you have a very diverse background. It's nice that you can actually still play into design as well as just be a part of the actual administration and business side of everything that's going on. Yes. So what's it like working with family and uh, having that passed down it's from the start of the company? Yes, the, some, some good questions there. There's um, there's the obvious planning of succession. I've been, with, uh, I've been working professionally for 15 years now. Uh, Dad is a very vibrant 72-year-old, um, <laughs> has intentions of retiring. Um, but, you know, we don't want him going anywhere anytime soon. He's got the secret sauce at the company. Um, to answer the first part of your question, how does it work? Um, I'd be hard-pressed to find a family business where you don't butt heads. So we've been fortunate to be able to separate power um, and departments. So what I like to say is Dad works on everything until the product arrives to the warehouse. I then inherit that. Um, create the marketing story, train the reps, train the customers, and sort of manage the sales. Um, I love product development. Uh, there are only so many hats that can be worn at a company. Um, so I have input and I have designs that I'm constantly coming up with that get put into the line. But in the interest of uh, being able to come into work positive as a team, we just stay out of each other's way. <laughs> so, so it's been working. Uh, so when you were younger, something that you just kind of knew this is the path that you were going or did you feel that you kind of had any freedom to do as you pleased or was it just something that you knew? It was never forced on me. There was never this feeling of, of obligation to join, but being a company like so many in our industry where we can travel the world, I was going on trips to Thailand and Indonesia at a young age, and at that time it was more visiting zoos and temples and the fun stuff. Uh, I knew that I'd have the ability to travel, that I can come into a career at an elevated level. That wasn't an important part of it, but I, I wouldn't have been starting at the bottom. So it was really hard to pass that up. And we do something meaningful by bringing different designs to the industry. Uh, it's not for everyone, but at least uh, we're bold and confident and strive to be different. So all those ingredients sound like a pretty good job opportunity. And I came in when we were a smaller company. so. It wasn't uh, what we are today, 
where it was an obvious, of course, I'm going to join the business. So we, we struggled and had to grow. And, and really, in the last decade of the three and a half decades we've been around is when we hit our stride. That was my next question. What's the actual size of your business now? And how has that changed or evolved from scale from small to big and departments? So I kind of want to hear a little bit about that organization because I think it's really interesting that you all carry different roles in the company. So we've grown a lot, as I said, in the last 10 years. So we were a company well under 50 employees, and now we've bridged that 50 employee mark. Uh, we've grown about fourfold over the last 10 years. So going from a small business to a medium-sized business, uh, really interesting question you're asking, uh, departments and roles. In such, uh, I'll use the term explosive growth, because that's what we experienced, much easier to buy more product, purchase additional warehousing, create bigger catalogs and assortments and showrooms versus the infrastructure and the personnel. You can't just bring somebody, I don't think it's unique to the furniture industry, but you can't just bring in executives and CFOs and expect that to just work easily. So in our growth, easy to, to add SKUs, add quantity of product, add customers, and there's a snowball effect to that. Our reps who represent other companies, not just furniture, but rugs and, and lighting lines, are now making more money selling Philips collections, so we're more top of mind and that kind of snowballs. But we do have uh, a problem right now um, with a solution that we um, haven't really tackled, which is adding more middle and senior management. Because I wear a lot of hats, dad wears a lot of hats, my mom's involved, my sister's involved. Uh, dad always said, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. But it becomes at a certain point, um, it becomes uh, something that needs to be addressed. So when you grow very quickly, adding personnel is something that you don't have time for but should have time for. It's a hugely important part of the It's process. hard to find that trust, too, I bet, expecting people to actually fill that role yeah. up to your expectations, standards. There's a company culture. You bring somebody in that maybe has, um, has very ambitious ideas. I love to nurture that, of course, but um, fitting into company culture. Yeah. And when you try to bring in a sales manager four times over 10 years and it's not successful, it sort of becomes like, okay, is that really part of who we are going to be able to be tomorrow? Right. You know, so what's what, my, what, what should I work on over the next few weeks following High Point Market? Um, some of the hot leads on customers or, or spending time interviewing you know, new hires? Right. Like, piggybacking off of your whole thing about trust and like, you know, it's a, very, it's a family business. Yes. Um, so do you find that like the more pros and there are cons with working with family that you find that your business is more successful because it's family run? Interesting question. I think uh, family run businesses, you live and breathe it, which is a plus and a minus. Yeah. I think sometimes family politics get in the way of what could be less emotional business decisions. I think uh, the dream, and then there's the, the ability to have succession. Um, there are fellow companies that we hold in high regards. I won't mention them, but it's it's uh, various principles that don't have necessarily the legacy to pass on. So that's a real problem for them right now. But I do think when you have a few principles that um, run different divisions, one is the finance person, one does design, one does maybe sales management. I've seen that work really well. But I think the industry loves family-run businesses. So we want to stay true to them. We know there are certain ways to catapult us to another level of sales, creating more mass market products. But we like what we do. We like having the ability to tell the story of what we do and push the envelope on scale and design and material. And, yeah, I think you know, saying very transparent is very important. For this, especially for this business. 
play where it's a very one-on-one personal yep. connection that you have. So being having such a strong connection just within your company, I think it's very important to stay true. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Is that exactly how you would describe the culture that you need to pass down to the rest of even the sales reps? Like how would they express their culture in business? I, I feel think like we've, it's a difficult thing to yeah, encapsulate. Yeah, um, we uh, strive to be different. We work a lot with sustainable materials. We've been described as a very nice company to work with, so honest people, transparent, as you mentioned, hugely important. And what I have been saying lately is our company culture is on point. We have a group of young people in the office that all get along. There's no politics. I mean, just think how much that gets in the way. You know, as a student, um, that one bad seed or the professor that might be a little disengaged um, just kind of kills the vibe. Yeah. I so much prefer an environment where collaboration is encouraged. So I, in my earlier part of my career, thought I had all these great ideas. I still think they were pretty good. Um, but you come in and you're, you're kind of bullish and you don't solicit camaraderie amongst your peers and your employees, much better even if I have a good idea in the morning, come in, positive, hello everybody, let's come up with an idea for this project. Um, strength in numbers is profound. So if I think I can do something 100%, let me run the marketing, let me run the social media. Um, if I have a team of five people contributing, um, it's just impossible to outperform a group. So I'm all about, as I've, as I've shifted away from product design and the creativity there, I have found, and this isn't BS, um, creativity in building departments, building um, objectives, and then executing them, and, and we're all in it for career fulfillment. So it's not about the dollars, we have to remain profitable, we have to be able to pay, you know, cover the payroll, and always innovate, uh, but we feel we have good industry respect, and that goes a long way. So what would you trade off? Um, would you rather have, you know, ultimately the Porsche and no respect or, you know, whatever else, what a, not such a good analogy, but yeah, sustainable and, and pride in what you do and of course remaining profitable so that you can fuel new ideas. And I think that's so funny how you said that you kind of found creativity within marketing and totally, that would, that people would think of a totally different field than that's what you're actually in. Yes. But you again found it. I think that's just one of the many different um, facets within our industry that people don't know is out there. So yep. we're again, this is like our whole idea behind this whole show is to kind of get uh, the students' minds and eyes open to all the different opportunities and different jobs that are out there just within this industry that is so interesting. Yeah. So I think when 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 uh, students graduate and are looking or even pre-graduation and internships you can take, identify companies uh, that have a great work environment where it looks like there's career growth opportunities. But even if you get put in a field where it might not be related to the degree, and that happens the majority of the time. You study furniture design doesn't mean you're gonna be a lead designer at the company of your dreams, but an environment where where the principals nurture and become mentors uh, is so hugely important. So I think people should be very open-minded and, and find those, whether you prefer the idea of working for a large company or a startup or maybe starting your own business, um, opportunities where you're gonna enjoy it and see career growth opportunities. In order to get those opportunities that you need to put yourself out there, you need to be open exactly to every single one of those. That's yeah. the only way you're gonna be able to find yourself or stumble upon them and 
Yeah, mm -hmm. so that's what we're really trying to stress here. And it's, uh, to me, it would, it had, if I didn't have Philip's collection, I would want a career where I didn't see my position 10 years ahead of me as the senior person there. So the person that has 10, 15, 20 years and where they are, you kind of are looking at your future, and I don't think that's as exciting as working for like a small, nimble, dynamic company, um, especially very design-focused. So even in the marketing, we push the boundary on how old we can be. Um, and I kind of define that as where I wanted to be in my company, but um, often in smaller companies, you have to wear multiple hats. You might take a complete 90-degree angle turn from what you thought you'd be doing, uh, but that makes it exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Travel is such a such a privilege to be able to do at our company. So a career where you know you can go to trade shows like this one, um, it's just it's fun. There's not a monotony to your career. I was curious about your travel, even just past experience traveling outside of the states. How has that affected your business? It like as individually, um, it it broadens your sense of. The world, it makes the world a bigger and a smaller place, especially with technology. Uh, yeah, but from a design standpoint, uh, it's so interesting. As a trained industrial designer, it's all about efficiencies. It's not about taking people out of the equation and switching it to machine and process. Uh, but there is a lot of that because here in the States and in Europe, uh, per, it, human labor is sometimes the most expensive component. Whereas in Southeast Asia, where we source, that is not the most expensive component. The material isn't even the most expensive component. So I used to go over there and I saw a collection. We had these um, reclaimed coffee trees. These are smaller trees that they have to replant because the, the yield of the coffee bean starts to go down. So this is the practice of coffee farmers that these trees get uprooted. So we were taking those and sanding all the bark off every little branch. It would take two weeks to make one piece that we retailed for $1,500. I said, this can't be efficient. You know, is there another way to do that? And they say, no, um, one week, um, adding an extra week to embellish a product or something really doesn't add too much to the cost. So as a designer, even just thinking differently from what my education was about how to utilize uh, labor and the hammering of a copper vessel, these things, um, as a designer, they were very interesting challenges to kind of rewire my brain as to how we can design. I think it's like important for us as designers to look at objects and to kind of forget what it, what you're actually looking at, but then just remember what actually might like. How did it become this? Like how like how many how many hands have touched this rug? Yep. Like yep. it's just like very important to know like the story of it. So I don't know that kind of makes you a better designer. Like especially when designing new products, it's more like the reality of things. Like how will this actually get built? What are the different techniques? The higher quality techniques versus the lower techniques? Why? And how to exploit that um, in the story of marketing the design. You know, not everything has to be a reclaimed piece of wood found at a riverbed. Um, you can be producing mass production product and still find something. You know, why is this interesting? What is important about what's been done here in this? Yeah, the story, which not enough companies do, and I don't think they realize that they can be confident about what they're doing at their company. You know? So I'd love to start talking about the showroom. Yes, we were in heaven walking through the other day. It's really impressed. How would you describe how it's changed and then maybe just this year? What was the presentation and overall goal? So we have evolved a lot over the years. We met a Mexican artist in 2001 who was the first start of our leap forward in the size of our company and the, and the DNA and, va and core values of our company. 
and he created this very, his name's Yuri Zaptarain, we no longer work with him, but he's prolific. Uh, he turned our showroom into a gallery. We do not have sofas or case goods, so we're not able to paint the entire vignette, lifestyle vignette of a space the way a Bernhardt or a Century does so well. Uh, we're conscious of that, so you're walking into accessories and sculptural, occasional pieces. Um, so that really helped evolve us. Uh, we were an all-white showroom. We kind of started bringing in blacks and grays, and now we're very colorful, as you notice. Uh, specific to this market, we highlighted three designers that we worked with, three actually artists. One is um, somebody doing uh, a lot of gold embellished paintings, another does cast aluminum sculptures, and the third has done a collection called Atlas. Did you see the, uh, the figures holding up yes. tables? Yeah, yeah. Yep. So, yep. so highlighting three major collections in the front was new for us, and there's always this challenge as, at a company merchandising, what do you put in the front window? And it used to be everything in the front window sold, so you repeat it everywhere, what you want to really sell. Um, then that sort of changed, whether it was unique to us or, or to many companies. Um, you know, customers coming in, what's the first thing they saw? Are you pricing things too high? Are you pigeonholing yourself into one look? Um, for this market, for whatever reason, we had good success in the front. And it was kind of a shame for us for years, this, this one high-profit center of if you put an item in the front of the showroom, everyone's going to buy it. That disappeared for a long time for us, and, and it feels like it came back this year. So. It's funny, I'm going to backtrack a little bit when you said gallery, mm -hmm. kind of more like gallery, and that's really interesting to say that because when I walked in there the other day, I felt like I couldn't really not sit on anything or interact with anything, but it was mm -hmm. as almost as if I was in a gallery, I didn't want to sit on anything, or like, I thought I was more hesitant, like, can I sit on that? I don't even know, is that a chair, is that a table? Like, I wasn't quite sure, so that was... Really interesting, Taylor, you said gallery, because that's exactly how it felt. And so. that's something that I need to hear, yeah. and I think you didn't mean that in a positive or negative way. That was no, just your experience, yeah. but we want everyone to touch and feel. People think we are expensive, and we have some items that will retail for eight to $10,000. These are, you know, hand-polished stainless steel faceted pieces. There's a reason why they're expensive. They're a great value in that category. But we have some items that are $25, and, and these are things that I almost wish from a marketing standpoint I can just blast, like in a Walmart ad, like only $2.99 for the set. Uh, because when people learn our price point and the range of price point, it opens their eyes. And maybe I need to put a sign that says, like, sit and relax, you know, whatever it is, recharge. Um, there are these subtle things that we don't realize. I'm constantly looking at some of the best retail stores out there. So you've got like an Apple or a Louis Vuitton, and I'm not comparing ourselves to that in any way, but an Apple store is very wide open, and you can interact with the product. There's no over-the-top, buy-this kind of mentality, like if you went into a Walmart or a Target, per se. Uh, Louis Vuitton, the you know, these $5,000 pocketbooks, they're very um, intentionally... Uh, there's a lot of breathing room. They're not floor-to-ceiling shelves of just buyer product. And, and we have a lot of SKUs, and we're not marketing to consumers who kind of need that pause. Um, so our customers forgive putting maybe 500 more products in the showroom than, than your eye wants to see. So it's actually interesting how we design a showroom for customers for B2B versus B2C. Um, I think if you saw Philips retail stores, you would have a completely different brand perception when you walked in. So how would you describe that difference? Well, right now it's sort of like the opposite of what Louis Vuitton does, where they're very reserved and, and considerate about having these spaces where you can gather and, and just have some breathing room. Um, right now, showrooms uh, everywhere I look at market, they're crowded, 
but forgiven for being crowded. Because you have yes. product, it's expensive, customers know to go through, I tell them go through twice. If we had retail stores, it would be more experiential. There would be a big installation. I'm thinking of like the Camper Shoe Company. They're, I think, out of Spain, somewhere in Europe. And they just do like the coolest flowing counters for the shoes, which limits you from even having like two rows of their shoes. But they've thought about this. And these are Manhattan stores that are a fortune. Um, and consumers are paying attention to that. With Pinterest, with Instagram, you're seeing beautiful things, you know, flooding your eyes. It's, it's um, as a company, it's hard to keep up with sort of that, that elevation of, of beautiful imagery. Um, so when you're marketing to the consumer, I think you have to be much more sparing and sparse. Um, so people come in and they get a sense of who you are. You know, a lot of description of your, of, of your story which in our showroom um, maybe oftentimes isn't told enough, yeah. but we have salespeople there trained and ready to share that story. That's a really good point because even social media talking about that space and distance. Cause, I, mean, I was thinking of how like, when we walk through showrooms, it is difficult to somehow get that photo that's kind of like a yeah. really belonging. Yeah, yeah. It's that's hard to narrow point. a vignette though in showrooms just because there is so much going on. And so it's a lot harder to even, even track on social media. You don't find those vignettes that you normally find, say, in that Manhattan store, things like yeah. that. So this is a really good point. But and when selfies, when selfies became popular, yeah. uh, we did rhino selfies. We have this rhino head, um, a cast resin rhino head that was sculpted. It was not cast from an actual rhino, to be uh, careful, because in an interview I completely botched that one. Uh, and, and it's a moment of being able to take a picture in a showroom that you really like, and some people still do it. Somehow, like the whole selfie thing, people are still doing it, yeah. but... But there was this blip of maybe like three or four markets where everybody had their selfie. As social media was really coming exactly. up. And those become things that become posted yeah. other than the furniture. Yep. The furniture is kind of just a total distraction at that point. And really Instagram stories are a big thing. So Instagram's the most important platform, I think. We all have Pinterest pages in this industry. And it's important to focus on those. And you can, if you're paying attention to it, have half a million uh, page visits a month, um, which is way more than we get on our website. So Pinterest is important, but Instagram, the stories are more forgiving. Like I have to tell a very smart brand message. I can't advertise my meatballs and moonshine opening my night party on our Instagram page. Or if I do as a post, I have to take it down and it's evolving every day. So we've always invested a lot in our photography. So I have this whole archive of things that I know I can post, but you know, very conscious of how many comments you get and how many likes you get. And, and I can't wait for the day that Instagram takes that away. And they've talked about it where you no longer see likes or comments because, um, it, 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 it upsets you if you don't get a lot of likes. And, and I have my own personal Instagram, and I'm a victim of it. So it's just interesting as a company. This is your sounding board for people. You have your existing audience, and they want to see what's new. And then you have new people where you have things like our seatbelt chairs, which we've had in the line for 10 years. And that's the most impact thing I can show somebody new. So it's a balance, even in the showroom design, you know, how many seatbelt chairs do I put around? My existing customers are like, hey, I've seen it enough yeah. of the seatbelt chair, but the new people are like, what is that? Yeah, yeah. You know? That um, chair was so much more comfortable than I'd ever imagined. Yeah, <laughs> surprisingly <laughs> comfortable is what people say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we have to, like, beg people to sit in it, you know, exactly to your point. Yeah. I recently heard about the silent salesperson, and you may have learned about that in class. I hadn't... I could have known this for the last 15 years, but I didn't. So the silent salesperson, when someone comes into the showroom, 
the worst thing you can ask is, can I help you with anything? And the answer is always no. And then they go off on their own, and nobody's guiding them. I'm not telling them the story that I know when I tell it. It kind of gives them a whole different sense of who we are. So that silent salesperson, what is that? Those are those moments in showrooms and retail stores where they tell the story. You know, an REI type of company telling you what their company message is, where you have a moment to read that. So you're not just going vignette, 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 starting to gloss over it. It's a bit more editorial. Yeah. Yeah, we started to keep having more conversations the further we went around, but then started pairing different pieces with one another. It was a really interesting conversation. I think what Natalia said about his perspective. Yeah, because we were we were there for a while, maybe yeah. a couple of hours. So, but like within the, the first hour or so, I I didn't really interact with much. I just kind of walked around and did um and did the specific uh, snapshots and that. But then by the end, I was sitting in this corner and we were all huddled up and we were ended up having like an hour long, other long conversation. It was yeah. just like nice. really great to see that trans that transgression. Mm-hmm. But when I was when we were walking around, I saw like least two or three main points within your showroom you had the uh the wall installations that were all repetitive yes the, the pieces like the six to three but they they all it, like was consistent throughout the showroom and then also like body form was another thing a lot of body different body forms using a lot of different ways and you saw that throughout the showroom so those were the kind of key highlights that i took away and that i took pictures of oh, so nice. that was, yeah that was very interesting to see like kind of like a theme and it yes. made sense when you talked about since you work with specific two or three artists so that I kind of got that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The diving figures in the yes, front yeah. and the sea of faces. And then the ones that were wall. like the actual body figures, but they were like wraps, they were wire wraps. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Mesh. Mm-hmm. yeah. Those are great. So it was great. Very, I like picked up on those few uh, notations. Which yeah. We do a sophisticated organic presentation, the live edge pieces that, uh, depending on what kind of room you put them in, have different character. And then we have what I consider the whimsy. Um, fish on the wall, you know, parrots on the wall, you know, life-size humanoid figures, and then even our seven-foot-tall skinny figures, which are super skinny. They're emaciated, uh, very Giacometti-esque. But um, yeah, these moments of humor, which as a brand, I think that's another moment of silent salesperson. You walk into our showroom, you see a silver fish on the wall, you think, okay, these guys are a little bit different. You know, so. I was a little curious, just because we had a conversation about whether you're not touching something or not, but the perspective of things moving from, say, the wall to the floor to the ceiling, some of the objects start to repeat, which is a different scale and perception. And so some of the wall art then used as a sculpture to, say, hold lemons or something of that sort, some of the accessories. Can you talk about those comparisons and relationships? Yep, and now you're getting to what uh, I would call a collection. So you come up with an idea like the Atlas collection. These are those figures holding up tables, but we also did a mirror. We're going to be bringing out tabletop accessories. And it's an interesting moment of being able to have something that you think or has already proven to be a good seller. It's like, okay, that was a great coffee table. Let's bring that into a side table and maybe a mirror and and some other things. People don't buy that whole look anymore. They cherry pick. But if you know something successful, why not create other moments of that in other categories? Yeah, yeah because there could be an instance to where someone didn't love the design, but can implement it in their yeah. same room. They're always looking, oh, that would be nice if it was this So yeah. like to use that same idea, but in a different, variety. Yeah, different ways, that's kind of the key. Yeah, <laughs> and we talked to our customers, and some of the top customers were showing them new designs we have and, and getting their feedback. Yes, that's that something I would buy or no, or 
looks a little too coastal. Uh, so we, we want that feedback from our customers, like you should really expand on this collection. One thing they've been asking us is more tabletop. A lot of us have gotten away from tabletop. These are $35 sales, few and far in between. Much rather sell a $3,000 table. I'd have to sell a hundred of those tabletop items. But it fills a need for the customer and the reps and the customers are asking for it. So we have to have that. And it's okay if you sell a $35 piece. That might be what gets somebody into the door with Philip's collection. As they become more familiar, they say, you know what, I'm gonna try one of those tables. So requesting feedback on where to expand categories and new colors to add. We have a few moments of color in our showroom and all those items sell. That should be a trigger for me. Okay, maybe I don't go gold leaf and silver leaf for this next one, which you saw a lot of in the showroom. Why don't I do a blue? And a timeless blue. I don't like being on trend. That's not who we are. We kind of intentionally design in a bubble. I do not walk the show to get inspiration. Um, I stopped reading a lot of the magazines for inspiration. Uh, we are just trying to focus on the metrics of what's working for us. We have a lot of items. There's a lot of data to be mined from that. This whole internet movement and the way that algorithms are, are you know, feeding you content that you didn't even realize is top of mind. There's so much opportunity in the data of your own company that sometimes I feel like looking at others um, might change what I think I should be doing. I love that perspective. Now it makes sense why you want to delete your comments from Instagram. But yeah. <laughs> well, for this Atlas collection, I was getting some really bad ones that I didn't think were appropriate. They said it looks like slaves are holding up your product. And I said, ah, that's not good. I can kind of see how you might say that, but it was a whimsical collection. It's really not about that. But it's interesting, it's good feedback, and maybe it might change what I want to do round two with it. I think we can make, instead of those figures, we can make uh, branches in the metal. Um, so that might that, that's good advice. I don't want it front and center on our social media. You know, we do have to curate, you know, the look, but I'm not trying to censor the audience. Um, I just don't want the word slave associated with Philip's collection. As far as, um, as, far as uh, I guess, targeting certain demographics or... I guess when you're looking to uh, see what works and what doesn't, are you open to, I guess, I don't know, just different opinions or just your customers, as you said? Like, us as students, like, you know, that's something different that would be offered to the table, like different eyes, different perspectives. So I, are you open to, like, any type of demographic or is there specific? No, of course, of course. Yeah, um, in terms of bouncing prototype ideas off people, it's more for the reps and the customers. Um, but we've even done things recently, like with the Atlas Collection, and we opened it up to the public and said, sign up for a sneak peek of what we're doing. Uh, we are a company that loves feedback. We love positive feedback. We need to hear the negative feedback. Uh, we're a very friendly company, so I think we excel at that. So I want feedback from you. I love giving student tours. I will actually spend more time and energy talking to students. It's planting a seed in your mind to be a Phillips Collection advocate. Um, we have a very young team in the office going back to that kind of company culture. And I'm looking at them as being with us 10, 20, 30 years and nurturing that. We have a company where if you uh, work harder and more positive attitude, you're noticed and you're accelerated. Yeah. There is a big difference between somebody that comes in and stretches a project or is last minute on something, and the person that comes in, doesn't matter where you are at a company, if you're um, sweeping the floor, or answering the phone, or if you're brought in at a higher level, those that work hard when they finish something say, 
what's next. Mm -hmm. You know, we love that. We're like, okay, you're going to be a superstar here. It's really great that you, uh, you and your company uh, pinpoint those factors in somebody mm -hmm. because those are the elements that we're trying to stress again to students out there yes. about how to be a successful professional in the field in any office that they walk into. Mm -hmm. We want to strive to be that go-to person. Yes. Like, be, yeah. that like, be that person who the company just goes to. Oh, I need this done. Like, like do it like they just end up doing it without without even a question. Yep. Like and it's okay. Like especially as interns now that we're interning as students, like that's something important that you need to know. Yes, you can if they actually help you out with something else, but it's okay. You're there. That's what you're there for. And that's the pick up then that a good company would pick up on that and notice that and that makes your workers happy. It's just a mutual yeah. feeling of that. To emphasize your passion, because no matter what you're doing, whether it is like say a menial task and it's not the largest project in the world. Or et cetera, et cetera, as interns, yeah, sometimes we grab smaller tasks. Every contribution is going to work. Yeah. I think, um, you know, no intern has ever picked up lunch for us or went on a coffee run. I'm making the coffee in the morning sometimes. Uh, it's not fair to treat someone young any differently than an employee. An intern should be looked at as a future executive at the company. So give them the same tools. Sometimes there is a more menial task, um, but I'll often be the one to do some of that. I don't mind, I've, you know, something in my personality, I've never been afraid of a, of a term paper or a 1,000 line spreadsheet, you know, let's analyze this. Just start it. These things don't take forever. You know, no, there's nothing I've ever worked on that's been a 40 hour single project. And to your point, um, uh, if you want something done, give it to a busy person, is what my grandfather told my father, who has now told me. I have a yeah, four-year-old so, son that I don't, I don't think gets it yet. It's fitting. <laughs> yeah, but um, you know those people that, that are going to be superstars. They're the ones that are the busiest in the showroom. And I want to talk about one thing, which is um, confidence and knowing who you are. So not everybody's an extrovert and not everyone's an introvert. There's actually, I think, the largest population are ambiverts. So people that when they're comfortable and confident in a role, they really excel. Um, but if left in this big pool of competition, they may regress. I think it's important as a person to know who you are, what your skill sets are, what your weaknesses are, what you truly think as a weakness you can work on, uh, but really also exploiting your advantages. Um, every company needs all three of these types of people. Um, so if you're more introverted, I'm not saying use that to your advantage, but be aware of that. And for career growth or where you want to be, um, it's all about job satisfaction. If you live in an expensive city, I think you have to make money. Um, where I live here in, in, I live in Greensboro, but I'm here in High Point, I'm working every day. Cost of living is not the biggest factor, so do something you love. Um, we have that personality conversation a lot in school, actually, because we've actually done whether it be personality tests and then see how that expresses through our studio work yeah. and kind of, yeah, emphasize all of those, either whether they're strengths or they're not strengths, but using them to your ability as much as possible. Especially in the field that we're in, it is, you get out of it what you put into it. And it's like one of those things that you have to go get it. And once, even if you think you're there, if you think you made it, like it's even that much harder to sustain that position, that role. Yes. Yeah, it's very important to know. Well, and, and as, and as, um, you go in for internships or for your career. We have High Point University here, which is a really impressive school. They come very prepared to interview. And I've been shocked and, and happy is there, I've interviewed people that are like, will you hire me is basically what they're saying. 
And a lot of those students have said, what will I bring to them for their career? And it's like a complete mentality shift, but that's the truth. I mean, you are coming in as an asset that can grow the company or fill really important needs. And you should market yourself as, you know, what are you as the company I'm looking at working with going to do for me in my career? You don't have to say that outright, but go in with a confidence and seek out those companies um, with career growth opportunities, but also if you're introverted, um, maybe find companies that have a lot of those same types of people. Yeah, yeah. yeah and that's the goal of, I mean, of this and reaching out to people and finding these different outlets. And we don't want to express that you can need to work for the biggest company also yeah. um, and finding something that's going to fit you. And it's not just about getting landing that maybe picturesque job, yeah. mm -hmm. but finding something that fits your comforts. And yeah, we were talking about uh, when first-year students come in and we ask them, like, oh, like, where do you see yourself in five years? But, like, what's your ideal job? And you hear these answers, and it's like, how could you have such a pinhole idea already? Like, we want to show them yeah. exactly what is out there. And, like, because mm -hmm. you really you really never know where, where you're going to end up. So And, and so much changes. Yeah. And <laughs> so I much can changes. say this from personal experience, because Philip's question has been my only job, but... Be prepared to, to leave companies that you already see the writing on the wall. Uh, I have, you know, you will land on your feet. Uh, you will have student bills to pay. So um, make sure you have your backup plan in place. But um, I think it's wonderful when we train an intern, they start with us and then they say, you know what, I've always dreamed of living in New York. Um, I say, go. You know, it's yeah. not about me trying to retain them at that point. I want them to be happy. It's not benefiting you at that point yes. if your passion isn't entirely there. Yes. Mm -hmm. And there is talent out there as a as a company that employs people. We will find somebody else talented. Again, you might have to interview 50 people. Um, that becomes the law of statistics. I'm not saying that right. When furniture designers approach us and bring us 100 ideas and I only like 1%, they just got an item in the line. If you come to me with three amazing ideas in your mind, I'm not like any yeah. of them. So similarly, as you go out into the, the workforce, um, study 50 companies, um, not just the five that you thought, and find people uh, to ask, you know, who are some great companies to work for? I think, I think you go to a company's website and, it, and it's incredible. That doesn't mean you're going to have a great career there. Um, sometimes smaller companies, you bring in your skill set, um, even just from being able to build up their Instagram page, you can transform a company and then really feel like you've done something meaningful. So don't judge a book by its cover, I guess. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I know even you have only worked in one company necessarily, but your transition of skills, because you are so multifaceted, I think that tells a lot about your progression too, though. So I think you have actually maybe changed a lot more than most have, even in See what you think. Yeah, <laughs> wearing many hats and yeah. many different job titles. Yeah. And I got thrown in as somebody that was supposed to be, uh, you know, really junior at the company. Um, we had just lost our sales manager. This is in 05 when I graduated. Uh, our national sales manager decided to move to California, actually. So we wished him all the best. Uh, but I had to step in as a 21-year-old running 50 <laughs> salespeople. And I was really forced outside my comfort zone. And I think I'm more of an ambivert that 10 years ago was trending towards introvert, yeah. but forced by dad you know, <laughs> at, against my will the, to run the sales meetings and talk to 50 people and, and go on sales uh, presentations to customers. So, uh, you know, people are 
changeable. Yeah. I know a lot of people say people can't change, but I don't fully buy that. I actually don't buy that at all. It's about being open to the change. Open to the change and, and looking at it as learning opportunities. So as much as I'd love to be more in product design, um, I have found rewarding and, and satisfaction in what I do at the company. I did want to talk about product design to it, or just yep. a little bit. So yep. you did have a taste in that, and are you still doing anything that involves anything at Phillips Collection? Or yeah, so I am more of a sounding board on the designs being put okay. into production. This is another example of I think that will be part of the succession. I'll get back into it, but very little at this point. But I did study fine art throughout my childhood and high school. I, I discovered I was colorblind, which kind of killed my painting oh, really? career. Um, wow. But I've always been into sculpture, and I think not looking at color has allowed me to focus more on form and proportion. Uh, went to school for industrial design in Michigan, and graduated and went deep into product design and sourcing and development. But there was a more, more important void in my mind into the managerial and the departmental aspect of the company. Um, it was really dad and mom doing everything. So I had to sort of structure other departments, which I think was a, a necessary part of our growth. Yeah, Get but it was yourself. important for you to have that background. Yeah. Dad and I can take every it. trip together, um, but that's two people, two executives at the company focusing on one thing instead of the 15 other things right. we needed to focus on. Um, I don't miss it. I really don't. There, I, you know, you're young, you have designs, there's a bit of ego and disappointment that comes along with a design either not living up to what you wanted. Um, there's a lot on the table, a lot of heart and soul that goes into products you design. Um, what I do at the company is more behind the scenes stuff. Nobody knows if my training went well or not. Um, I'm not hiding from design, but it actually was a pleasure to step out of that because that ego, that whole component of, you know, did my other lead designer get more things? Was their design more popular? You know, I'm very transparent. These ideas went through my head. Uh, don't want to scare anyone away from product design. I started there. It was important for me. Um, but it's so interesting that you look back on it now and mm -hmm. you realize, I, I love this or I'm enjoying this. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's, that's being open to change. Most important thing to imprint on people is job satisfaction. So would you rather be a furniture designer doing kick-ass product? I don't know if I can say that word, but we're just going to slip it in or bleep me. Um, would you rather do that but hate going into work every day, making all this money, all this esteem, um, or doing something completely different but loving work every day? So that's what's important. Yeah, you need your degree. You need the experience. The, the home run is to do a field you love and a job you love. Um, there was a need for me to do something else at the company, um, sort of self-defined, and I've been enjoying it. So I do, I mean, I'll do 20, 30 products a year. I'll do product development trips. I, I do my input into what goes into the line and not. Um, so I'm very involved in that. It's just, I would say it's like 5% of what I do. Okay. Yeah. It still gives you, a, I mean, your perspective is totally different from this marketing standpoint as well. Yeah. Being able to understand product design so well and detail that you have a totally overseen view that I love. Exactly. And I'll, I'll say another thing, this is not a plug, um, but I have my own design portfolio. JasonPhillipsDesign.com, if anybody wants to go check it out and check out Phillips Collection and look at how different the two are. My aesthetic is clean, Italian, um, lots of technology in the design process. That's my, uh, that's my love of cars and engineering. 
married to my industrial design education, learning the 3D softwares. I have a desire to inject that into the company one day, not under my name, but it would be a complete shift in who we are at Philips. So I'm kind of holding what I love and don't want to compromise on design-wise yeah. for round three, you know, Philips Collection 3.0. That's a really yeah. great comparison to the future. Yeah. It's something I've sort of tabled for now. Mm -hmm. It's sort of competed and, you know, why can't we do more of these designs? And, and you know, Dad has full confidence in what I do, but it wasn't in the DNA of Philips. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of just back burner for me now. But, um, you know, check out those designs. I'm proud of them. They're, they're very different. It sort of has this boldness of being different, like Philips collection, but it's less organic. I think that's good, again, saying true to yourself and being transparent in that sense. You yep. have this, but you just remember at the end of the day to be yourself and to hold that down. Yeah. That's what's going to make you happy at the end. It's in my tool belt. And <laughs> when the moment is right, something will be done with it. And if I'm 60 and it's still not happening, I'll have to figure out something to do with it. <laughs> that's, that's my passion. That's my that's my name. Thank you so much for basically covering everything oh, in good. a short little snippet. Yeah, that was beautiful. Uh, yeah. So thanks for having this conversation with Absolutely. us. Absolutely. And Pleasure. great interviewers. So, oh, thank yeah. you very much. You guys will do great in your careers. <laughs> you can already tell. Yeah. So we'll see you next time on another episode of A Student's Perspective. Thank you. Bye. We hope you liked this discussion with the design industry from a student's perspective. Please like, share, and comment, and stay tuned for more inspiring conversations to come.